Well, it looks like all of you made it inside pretty dry. It's warm enough in here. If you're not, by the time you leave, hopefully you will be. <laughs> Thank you for coming. You know, my prayer this morning was not that you would just feel God's presence or that you would sense that he was here, but that you would truly experience the presence of God and let that change your life. Let me pray for just a moment. I feel like we need to do this as we focus in on the Lord. Father, I am grateful. I am unworthy. I've never in my life sensed a more compelling need to come into your presence than today. I do want to experience you. I want your word to speak loudly. I want your Holy Spirit to speak deeply. And God, I want you to change us. Lord, our country, our community, our church, our family, we desperately need you. Stir our hearts for you. Help us to be devoted to you alone. Because you are the almighty, sovereign God of the universe. Thank you for loving us, Lord. For your grace and mercy. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I pray. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, there's been a whole lot said about a Chinese spy balloon that invaded our sovereign space. And if you've kept up with things through the weekend, you know that two more unidentified flying objects have been shot down. Who knows how many more have slipped through. There's been a plethora of opinions about what should have been done about this unlawful and willful invasion. And there's been an abundance of commentary on why the Chinese willfully flew a space spy craft across our country. Been all kind of people talking about where we go from here. I was listening to the news the other day and heard former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Monday say that the Chinese President Xi Jinping is watching for American weakness, and that came on the heels of a four-star Air Force General, Mike Minahan, surmised, surmising the U.S. Uh, and making the statement that we will be at war with the world's most populous country by 2025. He actually said, my gut tells me that we'll fight in 2025. Pompeo said, I take General Minahan to be serious in the sense of he's clearly very concerned that we're not doing enough to prepare to deter the Chinese Communist Party. He said, I, I think that is what he really is getting at. It's hard to put a timeline on anything of any of these things. He says, 2025. But then he goes on to say, make no mistake about it, Xi Jinping is watching 
for American weakness. He's watching for an absence of resolve. And if he sees opportunity, he will seize that very opportunity. I want you to know that my message this morning is not intended to be political. It is totally intended to be spiritual. There is a geopolitical chess game being played right now throughout our world. In fact, there always has been. Everybody wants to be the top dog. And anyone who holds that position has an abundance of enemies who want to take it from them. China wants everything that America has and much, much more. They want world dominance and they want absolute sovereignty. But what they really want is even bigger than that. Focus. Think about this. I believe that they want a world without God. I believe they want a world without the church. That is certainly what Satan wants, right? But why would China want that? Well, just think about it. They can't be sovereign if God exists. No one person can. Neither can a nation, and neither can Satan. By its very definition, the word sovereign means only one. And there is only one God. And our God is sovereign. Webster defines sovereign as above or superior to all others. Chief, greatest, or supreme, independent of others. Excellent, highest, perfect. America, China, even Russia, and many other countries... They claim to have sovereign airspace that belongs to no one but them. And we boast of our ability and resolve to defend it and protect those who live under it. But friends, is it really ours? God said in the Psalms, For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle's on a thousand hills. He owns the hill and all the cattle. Every bird of the mountains and all the animals of the field belong to me. If I were hungry, God said, I would not mention it to you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Everything. Paul says all things happen just as he decided long ago. He also said, and we can know. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill you. They can only kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Not even a sparrow worth only half a penny can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to him than a whole flock of sparrows. Paul said, oh, what a wonderful God we have. How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge. 
how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? And who could ever give him so much that he would have to pay it back? For everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory evermore. Amen. Paul goes on when he wrote the Colossian church to write these words. Christ is the, the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before God made anything at all and is supreme. Notice that. Supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see and even the things we can't see. He made kings and kingdoms and rulers and all authority. Everything has been created through him and for him. He, exist, he existed before it. everything else began and he holds all creation together. Now if you do your spiritual math here, you'll understand what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ is our sovereign God. Everything belongs to him. Everything. Even us. Even you. John wrote, in the beginning, the Word we know to be Jesus Christ. He is the living Word. In the beginning, Jesus already existed. He was with God and He was God. And I would say that if He was, He still is. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that He didn't make. Life itself was in Him. And this life gives light to everyone. The light shines through the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I was reading some information this week as I was putting this message together. Some information published by Open Door International, who has put out a watch list of the 50 worst countries who are persecuting Christians throughout the world. Interesting list. And as you guessed, North Korea is at the top of the list. And then Somalia, Yemen, Iran is number 8. Then Afghanistan, India is number 11. Saudi Arabia is 13th. China, interestingly enough, is only listed at 16th. Cuba, 27th. Mexico, 38th. The U.S. CEO of Open Doors International, who is Lisa Piercy, said the persecution of Christians is now sadly a global phenomenon. For all of us, there is something for us to do. None of us are powerless to help. We all need to be concerned about what's going on in the world with Christians and the church. She went on to say, in communist China, those under 18 are prohibited from attending church. Crosses have been replaced with portraits of China's communist leaders, and the CCP is working to rewrite the Bible to align with its ideology. Utilizing oppressive restrictions, surveillance, and propaganda, the Chinese Communist Party is forcing Christians to put the ide ideology of the party before the teaching of Christ. Wow. 
She said worldwide, 360 million Christians face severe persecution and discrimination for their faith. The number of Christians who have been killed for their faith has risen by 80% in the last five years. As I was uh, pondering this, sitting at my desk the other day, this thought came to mind. I, I, I'm not going to tell you that it is of God, but I believe it is. Um, I'm very careful about those kind of things, but I believe this to be true. China has the willpower and the resources to make Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Christianity is the number one group, religious group in the world that's being persecuted around the world. And the reason is quite clear. We have put our faith in the one true and living God who is the only sovereign God of the universe. No one is sovereign but him. Friends, I don't know if you realized it, but you woke up this morning to a very different world than most of us grew up in. We do that every day. It, times are changing faster than we can keep track of. Uh, Christianity is growing less and less popular in world cu culture every day. Your faith in Jesus Christ is not being tolerated or accepted like it once was. Hatred for Christians and Jews is on the rise. You're going to see that this afternoon. Uh, you're going to hear about that. I've already heard about that with some of the TV ads that are going to be played during the Super Bowl. Listen. Hatred for Christians and Jews is on the rise. It's clear. And it's all because we believe and follow the sovereign God. Don't forget what Jesus said. John records it. He said when. He didn't say if. He said when the world hates you. Remember that it hated me before it hated you. The world would love you if you belong to it, but you don't. Jesus said, I chose you to come out of the world. And so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. The people of the world will hate you because you belong to me, for they don't know God who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoke to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me hates my father too. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be counted guilty. But as it is, they saw all that I did and yet hated, yet hated both of us, me and my father. This was fulfilled so that the scripture said, they hated me without cause. As I was preparing this message over the last couple of weeks, uh, I was probably halfway through with preparation for today when I received a text, including a letter from John MacArthur. It's interesting that this letter was written February the 2nd, 2014. I want to read this for you. 
John wrote, the world in which the first Christians lived was brutal, totally pagan, and openly anti-Christian. There was no affiliation of affirmation of morality or any sort of cultural Christianity. Early believers were aliens to everything in the culture. What's more, Christians had no governmental advocacy or special protection. And so unrestrained persecution was happening to them everywhere. Proclaimers of the gospel essentially became martyrs. Hence the word martyros becomes the word for witness. To embrace Christ often meant signing one's own death warrant. What was the cause? Uh, what, what was the church doing to cause such resentment, hostile treatment, and persecution? Well, he says, Christians preached the word of Jesus about God becoming incarnate, about the bread of heaven coming down. And I want you to notice that John didn't say preachers preached. He said Christians preached. And he said the message was simple and clear. If you don't repent and believe in him, you're going to hell forever. They were confronting sin, calling people to deny themselves and becoming lifelong slaves to a crucified Jew And it was a hard sell. They were preaching a gospel that was deeply offensive both to the Jews and the Gentiles. John goes on to write, I can't help but think of how much our own culture has changed in recent decades and how rapidly it's becoming Acts chapter 1 and for that matter Romans chapter 1. Perhaps like me, you grew up in an America where there was a widespread cultural Christianity, a kind of Christian consensus. To some degree, people understood the church, the Bible, and the gospel. They accepted the Judo-Christian ethic. While most people weren't genuine Christians, there was still superficial acceptance of, or at least tolerance for, cultural Christianity in politics and business and education and public life. Where are we today? Where is the general acceptance of the tenets of the Bible and Christian values? Where is the influence of the religious right or the moral majority? He says, gone. No more. There is no more cultural Christianity. There is no collective Christian consensus welding any significant power in this country. In fact, the more biblically true Christians are and the more they speak and live, the more they're going to be labeled as extremists, homophobic, intolerant, and guilty of hate crimes. We are now aliens. Keep in mind, he wrote that in 2014, nine years ago. And he says, I think that we can all foresee a day when being a faithful Christian could cost us our lives. I think we're closer than ever to living in the conditions like the people did in the book of Acts. So is there any good news? Any good news? Actually, he says, I believe the current situation is good news. 
For years, I've been concerned by the church's pursuit of cultural change through politics and social activity. And large swaths of Christians who placed enormous time and energy and money and hope in the wrong places. Hand in glove with that, superficial cultural Christianity has blurred the clear lines between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world and softened the hard demands of the gospel, making professing Christ easy and without cost. As a result, churches have been filled with highly religious, superficially moral, self-righteous people who don't understand the gospel and are self-deceived about their true spiritual state. He says, But with the facade of cultural Christianity crumbling, True Christianity is starting to stand out in a way that it hasn't in our lifetime. He says scripture teaches and church history confirms that the body of Christ is most potent and most effective when it simply speaks and lives the gospel without equivocation or apology. With the mask of a superficial Christianity gone, He says, I believe that the best days for the spread of the true gospel may be ahead of us because the gospel advances by personal witness to Christ one soul at a time. Amen and amen. My friends, it's high time for you and me as Christians and as the church to get back to the spiritual basics And proclaim the good news about and for the the sovereignty of Almighty God. It's not just my calling to preach this. It is our calling. And you preach every day by how you live. Not just with words but with your actions. There is no God like our God. There is only one God. And how blessed we are to know him. How blessed we've been that he's made himself known to us. I've been doing a lot of reading in the Psalms lately. You can learn a lot from what David wrote. David understood what I'm talking about this morning. I want you to understand that. David understood this. And he was so grateful to God for his goodness to him. David also knew that God alone had rescued him from those many occasions when when people wanted to kill him, and he wanted to praise God. David actually wrote Psalms 18 as a way to express his gratitude to God for delivering him from the enemies who persecuted him and from those who were constantly trying to kill him. What I want us to see this morning as we look at this psalm is that everything that David said about the Lord, it flowed out of his devotion to God. It was all about his love for God. What is amazing to see is that David's devotion became the ultimate mark of his love for God. David truly loved the Lord. Therefore, he gave him his undivided devotion. And it was given to God and to God alone. David chose not to use the normal word for love that bears the covenant meaning. But instead, He used a rare verb form of a a word group that expresses tender intimacy. David made this choice to express his 
very strong devotion to God. And it was this vibrant and genuine love that, that laid the foundation for his total submission to God. Because David devoted devotion led him into a more intimate relationship with God. He knew that he could, and he could speak with confidence about the sovereignty of God's character. You see, David didn't read about God in a book. And his knowledge of God wasn't gleaned from a sermon or maybe a, a, a weekend conference or a Sunday school lesson. David knew God because he lived with God. He lived with him. He walked with him on a daily basis. Knowing God wasn't a, just a Sunday experience. It was a daily life that he lived in the presence of God. I ran across this quote by David Wilton the other day. He said, a heart in tune with God is a heart in touch with God's actions. David's outburst of love for the Lord formulated the essence or, or the essential testimony of his entire life. In these first three verses of Psalm 18 that we're going to be putting a lot of attention to this morning, David lists seven attributes of God's sovereignty to describe why he could fully trust in the Lord. David was a warrior king, I mentioned that to you the other day, who knew intimately the divine warrior of the universe. Throughout this psalm, David uses some military terminology to describe his God, who was all that David needed in life's toughest battles. So I want us to look at these seven attributes of God's divine sovereignty that um, make him the trustworthy God that he is. Notice the first thing that David mentions. He, he talks about how God is our strength. He said, I love you, Lord. You are my strength. In verse 32 he said, God arms me with strength, and he makes my way perfect. Dwight L. Moody said, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. When man has no strength, if he leans on God, he becomes powerful. What an amazing statement. Growing up as a small boy, my, my father worked for a natural gas company. And he drove one of the company trucks. It was an old, red, dingy-looking truck that had these big tool bodies that went down both sides of the back of the truck. And if you ever saw my dad, you would be amazed. He was only five foot six. Uh, in his adulthood, he wore a six-and-a-half shoe. He was small, but my dad was a strong man. Dad used to stand me up on those big toolboxes, and he would back off, and he would encourage me to jump into his strong arms. And you know, never one time when I jumped off those toolboxes did my father ever let me hit the ground. He always caught me in those strong arms. You know what? I learned the strength of my dad. I learned to trust my dad by doing what he told me to do. As a believer, you and I have a heavenly father whose strength is more sufficient for every need we will ever have. Isaiah said, trust in the Lord forever. For in Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. David said, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So, he will, so we will not fear. Even if earthquakes come, 
and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the water surges. Oh, friends, God is our strength, right? He is also our rock. I've always been fascinated by rocks. I always want to climb up on a rock. You put a kid out in the yard that's got a rock, guess what he's going to do? He's going to climb it. David said, the Lord is my rock. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? I want you to listen to the words of a song that Moses wrote about the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, Moses wrote, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words that I say. My teaching will fall on you like rain. My speech will settle like dew. My words will fall like rain on tender grass, like gentle showers on young plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. Moses describes God here as the rock. And he does so to represent the stability and the permanence of God. It's interesting that he placed this word rock at the beginning of what he said with special emphasis. And then he followed with a series of phrases to elaborate on the awesome attributes of God who is and was the rock of Israel. The Lord is without question the massive, unshakable foundation and source of protection that we all need. He is our rock. He is our strength. He is our rock. David goes on to say, God is our fortress. The Lord is my fortress, David said. If you know anything about David in his years of of having to run from Saul, he never had a strong place to hide. Uh, Even the strongest of warriors need a strong place where they can find rest and safety. But David didn't have that in a physical sense. But David knew God to be a stronghold. He knew God to be his fortified castle, his ultimate defense and place of protection. Look at what he wrote in Psalms 144. Bless the Lord who is my rock. He gives me strength for war and skill for battle. He is my loving ally and my fortress, my tower of safety, my deliverer. For David, he knew God to be a compassionate fortress for all who would put their hope in him. He is our fortress. David goes on to say God is also our Savior. Look at what he said. The Lord is my Savior. And I call on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. I don't know what you would write if I gave you a three by five card and said write about what your struggle is right now. But David wrote his right here in this psalm beginning in verse four. He said the ropes of death surrounded me. The floods of destruction they swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death itself stared me in the face. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. And he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. 
David said, man, I was so close to death that I could taste it. He was talking about having one foot in the grave and one foot out. But because David and God shared such an intimate relationship, God orchestrated this massive intervention to save David from death at the hands of his enemies. I I love what he says in verse 16. He said, he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He delivered me from my powerful enemy, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. Oh, my friends, you need to know God as a Savior. He goes on to say, not only is he my Savior, but God is our protector. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. David believed that when life got really hard, that God would see him all the way through it. David had seen God protect him from harm on so many occasions. God doesn't always deliver us immediately from tough times. But we can trust that he is with us and that he will preserve us and protect us. Christian, you know what? I think when we get to the other side, we're going to get to see some amazing things that God has done for us. We have no idea how many times God has protected us from our own foolishness and from the carelessness of others. But our God's busy. We keep him busy. Uh, You know, if everybody has an angel, mine's working overtime. God is our Savior. He's our protector. God is also our shield. David writes, he is my shield, the the power that saves me. As for God, his way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. You have given me, notice this, the shield of your salvation. Do you understand how important it is to be saved? To come under the divine protection of God? It's like being under an umbrella on a rainy day. How many brought an umbrella? (laughs) He says, your right hand supports me. Your gentleness has made me great. How many Trekkies we got here this morning? Trekkies? One, two, three, four, few more. Some of you are, but you're afraid to raise your hand. (laughs) In that Star Trek series, during times of danger, Captain Kirk was the one who made the decision to raise the protective shields, was he not? And when those shields were raised, the enemy could fire all they wanted to, but the ship was protected. But if for some reason those shields couldn't come up, they were in grave danger. Listen, we are no different. We're no different. Solomon wrote, every word of God proves true. He defends all who come to him for protection. He is our shield. And if you have that salvation that he gives, you are protected. David goes on to say, God is our security. He is my place of safety. 
He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. I love that. He, he rescued me because he delights in me. Can you even begin to imagine how lonely David was being constantly hounded and challenged? I mean, who could David trust? Saul relentlessly pursued David for a period of about 10 years. David never knew where Saul was coming from. Saul used every possible means to demean David and to make certain that he knew his life was in grave danger. That's why David was always running for his life. He probably seldom slept twice in the same cave. He must have wondered if he was going to be alive to see the next daylight. I suspect much of David's time was spent battling depression and despair. Oh, he was a man of God, but he was human. If it had not been for the security that God provided David, he would not have survived. He said, as for God, his way is perfect. All the Lord's promises are true. They prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock. God arms me with strength. He has made my way perfect. I want you to notice as David wrote about God, he didn't brag about his own ability, but he pointed to the power of the Lord. Rather than boast about his natural fighting ability, he humbly relied on God. He bragged about God. David's humble attitude helped him to depend on what he knew to be true, that God was his ultimate security. David alone knew that God was you know, or David knew that God was the only one that could be turned to and trusted. God was and is totally trustworthy. What David says over and over again. But why? Simply because his, way, his ways are perfect. His ways are perfect. His word is true. His protection is sure. David trusted God's leading. And David said that God delivered him from all of his enemies. You know, when we go through a, a difficult time, we want God to fix it right then, don't we? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why did God wait 10 years to take care of David's problem with Saul? 10 long years, God allowed Saul to haunt and hound David. Why did he wait so long? I can't help but believe that God was using David's difficult situation in life to shape him to become the leader that God had called him and created him to be. Some of you are going through some tough times, and, and I can't help but believe that the same thing is happening through, through your life. God is shaping you to become who he wants you to be. And so I say don't fight that. You know, it's important to pray for what God wants, right? Here's a good question for you. And I, and I ask this question because I believe that Christianity is headed into a, a new period where we're going to need to know where this place is. Hear me? Where is the safest place in the world? 
I've often thought about that. Because when it gets really bad, you want to be able to go to that place, right? Where is the safest place in the world? Do you know? I believe it to be not necessarily a physical place, but a spiritual place. The safest place in the world is in the middle of God's perfect will. You think about that. If you are in the middle of God's perfect will, there is nothing that can come against you or harm you that is outside of God's perfect will. He will sustain you through those times if you're in the middle of his perfect will. I close with this verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. You see, every day the world is trying to mold us and shape us to worldliness. David said, don't do that. Or excuse me, Paul said that. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. What you read, what you hear, what you see, what you taste, what you touch, it's all very important. He says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will know what God wants you to do. And you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. Last question. Think about this. And I encourage you to think about this because I believe we're headed to a point where you're going to be in one camp or the other camp. Culture is pushing in that direction. Who are you devoted to? If it came to a decision... For me to live, I've got to go this way or I've got to go this way. Who are you devoted to? There's only one sovereign God. The safest place in the world is to be in the middle of his perfect will. I pray that for you.